Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. What I want to do is I want to build off of what we talked about last week. And so I'm just going to make a few comments, kind of bring you up to speed if you weren't here last week. And then we're going to, we're going to springboard off of that. Uh, so I'm not going to pray because we already did. All right, we looked at six points last week. And here's the six points. Number one, God's goodness. We sang about it this morning. God's goodness is the foundational doctrine. It is his most important attribute. These are not mere thoughts, they are mindsets, that the idea of God is good. We talked about how uh, really the threshold of heaven and the threshold of hell have to do with your stance on, those, on that truth. Uh, we talked last week how uh, it just may be that over the threshold of heaven, carved into granite, is this phrase, God is good. And over the threshold of hell is scratched the damning phrase, God cannot be trusted. And your heart posture in regards to those two statements will determine whether you enter heaven or hell, not only in the age to come, but now. Because the second point we need to understand is eternal life is not some futuristic thing. It's not some far off thing. When we talk about eternal life or eternal death from a biblical theological perspective, the emphasis is not on whether we will exist or not, we will all exist forever. The emphasis is on, yes, the longevity, because it's going to be eternal, but it, the emphasis is more on the quality of our existence. We will either have eternal life or eternal death. Now, we also need to realize, number three, that eternal life begins now. Biblically speaking, we have already entered into life by faith. Faith gives us access to heaven. Faith gives us access to eternal life. And we are already living in the life to come. And so we need to understand that because some people live in hell now and others live in heaven now. Now there's an increase of that. Scripture is very clear that we can by faith. It's the phrase in scripture is access the powers of the age to come. That we literally live, we're, we're living in eternal life now. I was, I was going through the book just this week. I, I was reminded of a few quotes from it, but I'd never read the book. I just read quotes from it. So I, I finished it yesterday, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And it was the book. It's an allegory of a bus ride to heaven. And all these people get on the bus and they go to heaven. And they're, they're going to decide whether they, want, whether they want to stay. It's really a fascinating book. But in that book, he runs into George MacDonald, the Scottish author. Some of you are familiar with George MacDonald. And George MacDonald's kind of given him a tour around heaven. It's in the lowlands. He said, it is the valley of the shadow of life. It's the beginnings of heaven, but not the permanent place. And people get to decide. Now, that, that isn't really how it works, but it's, it makes for an interesting allegory. And George MacDonald says to the, the, uh, the, the character that's the lead character in this allegory, he tells him that literally both heaven and hell are retrospective. And he said so much so that at the end of one's life when somebody has, they, they, they've surrendered to the Lord, they'll look back at their life and they'll say, all I've ever known is heaven. Because literally everything becomes reinterpreted by their experience in the Lord. Because they're looking at it through the lens 
of the goodness of God. It's, we look back and even the trials, even the tragedies, even the pain in our life begins to glisten with the glory of the age to come. And he says, so also those who have rejected God at the end of their life with cynicism and bitterness, they say, all I've ever known is hell. Because even the, the, the blessings take on a shadow of hell itself. And so in that sense, they're both retrospective. It's really a vivid picture to, to talk about this principle that we already live in the age to come. And faith gives you access to heaven and unbelief seals you to hell. In that same book, he also made this statement. He said, heaven is at the end of someone's life. They say, God, your will be done. Hell is at the end of our life. God finally acquiescing and saying, okay, your will be done. And he goes on to say that hell is locked from the inside. We're not locked in hell. We lock ourselves in hell because of our faith or the lack thereof. We also talked about this principle, that God takes faith and unbelief very personal. And sometimes we can struggle with that. I've heard people say, well, I can't, I can't help that I don't believe. That's not true. Both faith and unbelief are choices. Unbelief is different than doubts. Doubts, from a scriptural perspective, are unanswered questions that you have. They're holes in your faith. Unbelief is a choice not to believe. And the reason God takes those two things so personal is because they are very personal. Your faith or your lack thereof, your faith or your unbelief is your declaration, your estimation of the worthiness of God's character, of his trustworthiness or the lack thereof, that, that you cannot, he cannot be trusted. And so we need to understand that faith gives us access to the powers of the age to come, now. And so one of the greatest expressions of your faith really is a positive attitude. Because when you are rooted and established in the goodness of God, that most essential, most important of attributes of God, when you are rooted and established in God's goodness, then you look at life from a positive perspective. And even hardship begins to be reinterpreted and you know this is just an opportunity for breakthrough. And so one of the greatest expressions or the clearest expressions of your faith is the attitude with which you approach the here and now. Are you negative or are you positive? I think we, we often... Uh, underestimate the power of those two postures, that attitude. I've heard people, uh, you know, talk about the power of positive thinking. Years ago, there was a book written about that, and people would kind of, you know, all oh, power of positive thinking like that is irrelevant, but it is very relevant to the Christian life. Because if we really believe in the goodness of God, we're going to have a positive outlook. And even our trials are reinterpreted, and we know this, this is just a breakthrough waiting to happen. And so it's very important for us to understand. And then the last thing we talked about last week was, if I can get to it, gratitude for his goodness creates faith for your future. And I talked about how gratitude is key to future breakthrough. Gratitude and ingratitude are to your history what hope and despair are to your destiny. Ingratitude cries, there's nothing good in my past. While despair bemoans, 
there's nothing good in my future. But they really both come from the same perspective, the same conviction about the nature of God. Psychologically and theologically, gratitude and hope are intimately connected. The same mindset that appreciates the positive in your past will naturally expect the same for your future. But the negative corollary is true as well. The mindset that refuses to acknowledge the positive things that have happened to you in the past will fail to recognize any possibility of it in the future, breeding despair. So if you practice gratitude, you will inadvertently cultivate hope. Put on the lenses of thankfulness. They are the key to seeing the blessings that lie in your future. It's why David, when David faced Goliath, he reminded himself, he rehearsed his past victories. He looked back at the faithfulness of God in his history, remembered the lion and the bear, the bearskin rug and the lion's head mounted above his mantle so that he could cultivate the courage to face Goliath. So the way to gain faith for your future is to revisit his faithfulness in your past. All right? So that brings us to today. Uh, I woke up early this morning trying to figure out where to, where to, where to jump in here. Uh, woke up early this morning and I was in prayer and I had a vision. And I saw, now you're going to think, what in the world does that have to do with anything, Pastor? I'm going to unpack this, okay? What I saw was a man excitedly climbing a fence. He was, his face was gleaming with joy and confidence. And I knew, the Lord didn't have to explain it to me. As a matter of fact, the way I immediately wrote it down was, I saw a witness. He was extremely blessed. That was what stood out about this man. He was a witness and he was extremely blessed. That was his message, his testimony. Now, mind you, the Lord didn't tell me any of that. I just knew it when I saw him. And he was climbing over this fence, so excited to enter into the future. He was coming out of a place of limitation into the world to be a living testimony. He had outgrown his personal or his previous limitations. His metron was expanding. He was full of faith and confidence, excited to invade the world and its future. So I began to ask the Lord, what is this about? And I felt very strongly it's connected to Abraham. That this man who was blessed, it was tied to the blessing of Abraham. And so I asked the Lord about it. And the Lord told me that it is the Abraham initiative. And it is upon us as a planet. And I'm going to prophesy to you this morning, and then I'm going to unpack it from the Word, okay? This is the state of the kingdom of heaven right now. COVID, globalism, elective election scandals are all the dying gasps of the enemy's most recent attempt to set up his government in the earth. But God has stepped in with a preemptive strike. I'm, I'm telling you, this is what the Lord told me this morning. There is a reason the song, this is, he told me this this morning while I'm lying in bed. He said, there's a reason that I released the song, The Blessing, in this hour. How many of you are familiar with that song? There's a reason it's been released now. Because there is a blessing coming upon the church. We are on the cusp of a fresh move of God. This is going to be a global, generational move of God by which the nations of the earth 
will be blessed. The enemy had his plans of globalism, and God had his plans, and God is going to win. The Lord has stepped into human history. So what is the Abraham Initiative? The Abraham Initiative is found in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. That's what I saw in this man. He literally dripped with blessing. He was a blessing. It was his message. He was extremely blessed, but he was breaking out of the former limitations to become a blessing to the nations of the earth. God's way, his method of revolution is to bless and then in turn to multiply it to others. The foundation of what I'm saying this morning is what we said last week. It's what Ben and Hannah led us in this morning, that God is good. That is our anthem. The good news of the king's dominion, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the king's dominion is only good because God himself is good. If the king is not good, the gospel caves in on itself. The only reason it's good news that our king has dominion is because the king that has dominion is good. There is a goodness, a kindness, a moral, uh, a, a moral, what's the word I'm looking for? A moral superiority to our king. He's always good. He's always merciful. His mercies are new every morning. That is our king. He reigns upon the just and the unjust, Scripture says. Now, we think a rain is a, a, not a blessing. Oh, man, it's raining on it. No, rain is a blessing. Just try going without it for about three years, and you'll find out what a blessing it is. I remember being in Brazil on a missions trip, and uh, they took us out to this spot. There was this mountain they wanted us to climb. Well, we get halfway out there, and it starts pouring rain, and we are in the middle of nowhere in Brazil. And uh, we were not dressed for the trip. A lot of the ladies had on white T-shirts. It was not a good situation. So it's, so it's raining on. So the guys are taking their shirts on so the ladies can put a second shirt on. So now you have these pasty white, overweight <laughs> Americans, men that are like soaked, you know, and we're walking out there. It was not a good scene. And, uh, very few of us had the victory by the time we reached the summit. And they wanted to do some prophetic acts. So here's these pasty white overweight Americans and these ladies that look like drowned rats with two shirts on. And, uh, and, the, and the Brazilians, they're like all excited. We're going to make declarations. And we're all grumbling until this long-haired Brazilian guy, I forget his name. It was Randy's guy down there. Do you remember what his name is? Anyway, he gets very dramatic looking. Yeah. Ed, Ed Rocha, he, he gets up there and he, he starts making these declarations and he reminds us as we're standing there in the pouring rain, he said, rain in biblical times was a sign of the blessing. Then I'm all convicted, you know. <laughs> so rain is a blessing. God blesses the just and the unjust. We are living in an hour where global players have attempted to take over. They are calling it the Great Reset, according to the World Economic Forum. This is another run at Babel. Really is. You, you can say, oh, pastor, you really going to get into this? This is what the Lord told me. I'm just, I'm, you know, don't shoot the messenger. This is what the Lord told me this morning. 
He said, this has been another run at Babel. But God's response is the Abraham initiative. Abraham was God's great reset. Do you realize that? Abraham was God's reset. Let me, let me build this in scripture. Look with me in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Matter of fact, look with me in Genesis chapter 11 before we get to chapter 12. In chapter 11 is the story of Babel. And the, uh, Nimrod, the, the, he was the leader that was uh, leading this effort. His name has now become an insult, but at the time he was a great world leader. Matter of fact, extra biblical literature talks about Nimrod as, a, as this, this global leader. He was arguably the first real regional global leader at that time. Uh, the Septuagint calls Nimrod a great warrior ag or hunter against the Lord. Our modern translations translate a uh, great hunter before the Lord, but the Septuagint, and understand the Septuagint was the Greek version of the Old Testament. It was uh, uh, Alexander the Great hired a bunch of Greek scholars to translate the Old Testament into Greek so he could put it in uh, humbly in the library that, was, that bore his name in Alexandria, Egypt. He wanted a copy of every book that was ever written. The reason the Septuagint is important is because th these translators, these Hebrew Greek experts were very close to the, the times the scriptures were written. They were much closer than we are, and so they, had, uh, they, they were, had a much more accurate perception of the nuances of the word. And they translated the phrase with Nimrod that he was a great warrior against the Lord. He was an ungodly man. And so what he did is he led this building of this ziggurat, this tower. And now we read the text and we think, wow, they were really ignorant. They thought they could literally build a tower so tall they could step into heaven. That's not what they were thinking. These ziggurats, they were the same idea as pyramids. They were, they, they, in the, the uh, Semitic mindset back in that time of human history, they believed that the gods dwelt on mountains. So they would build these man-made mountains so that they could entice favor from the gods. And so this was an occult effort for them to, uh, you know, partner with these, these demonic spirits, okay? And so God steps in. So the Lord stepped in. He said, it says, the Lord went down to examine what they were doing and said that now nothing will be impossible for them because they all speak the same tongue. And so look in verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and the left off building. Verse 7, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and left off the building of the city. And so this was the great dispersion, but it's also known by theologians as the disinheritance of the nations. Okay? So let me, let's look at Deuteronomy Verse, chapter 32, real quick. Deuteronomy 32, because this is, and we talked about this several months ago when we were doing our, our 17-year series on intercession. Well, it wasn't quite that long, but it was quite long. Okay, look at verse 8 of 8 and 9 
of Deuteronomy. This is Moses' song. This is the end of Moses' ministry. He's singing a song. He's written it out, the, the oral history of Israel, and he's going he's gonna to share this with the people of Israel. Verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now I'm reading from the ESV. Some of our other modern translations translate that according to the, the number of the sons of Israel. And it's, it's, scholars agree it's a reference to this, the, the building of the Tower of Babel when God dispersed them. That's what this is referring to. Now the reason that some translations will translate this, the number of the sons of Israel, is because some of our later manuscripts say that. But we know, well, whoever changed that, it was, error, it was not an accurate uh, presentation of what was originally wrote because Israel wasn't even in existence yet. We don't even have Abraham being introduced until the next chapter. Chapter 11, we have Babel. Chapter 12, we have Abraham. I'm going somewhere, okay? Hang with me. So it says he divided, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So we, this we get into Psalm 82 where God takes his seat in the divine council. Among the, he rules among the gods, Psalm 82 says. And what it's talking about are these, these beings. He says you are all sons of God, but you will die like men. He's judging these spirits to whom he delegated the nations. We see this in Job. Remember in the first chapter of Job, God calls the sons of God before him to discuss, and he says to one of them, or the, he, the, the Satan in, in the Hebrew, so there's, it's arguably not sa the Satan we know, it's a title. The Satan comes before him and he says, where have you been? He said, I've been looking throughout the earth, and he said, have you considered my servant Job? Remember that? It's the sons of God. We see this reference several times in Scripture. This group of Ruling spirits are known as the divine council, according to Psalm 82, Psalm 89, some other passages. They're also known as the sons of God. They're also, uh, there, there's other phrases that, that talk with them. Why is this important? Because look at the very next ver ver verse, verse 9. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance, his, his allotted heritage. So what it's saying is God said, okay, Babel, the nations have gathered against me. I'm going to disperse them according to the number of the sons of God, these ruling spirits that he delegated authority to. And then later on in Psalm 82, pronounced judgment over that we see carried out on the cross, that in Colossians chapter 2 says he stripped these spirits of all their authority. What the Old Testament refers to as these sons of God, these Elohim, these this divine council, the New Testament refers to as principalities. And what we see in the New Testament is he stripped authority from them because they misused their authority and entered into rebellion against God. And so when he delegated to the nation, the, these nations to these sons of God, as we see in this passage, it said he retained Israel for himself. Well, in Genesis chapter 11, we see Babel, which is, this is what this is referring to. And so God disperses the nations, confuses their language, but it said he retained one nation as his heritage. 
and that was Jacob or Israel. Well, this is all referring to Genesis chapter 11 where he disperses these nations. And then in chapter 12, God introduces a new character onto the stage of his grand story of redemption. And who was this man? Abram. Abram was God's great reset. God said, I'm going to disinherit these nations and I'm going to raise up a nation for myself. But what is he? But it, the, the nations were still in his heart because what does he say? He said, I will bless you, Abram, and you will become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So what God was going to do is take back his nations by sending people into the earth to become a blessing. That's where we get the whole idea of missions way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 11 and 12. So this is very important. So God had a reset. What did he do? He blessed a man. He chose a man. He found a man who was known as the father of what? The father of faith. What we were talking about last week. Someone who would stick with God through thick and thin. Who'd surrender his life to the Lord through hardship, through the good times and the bad times. And so God found a man that he could build on. He blessed him and he in turn became a blessing to the nations of the earth. And as I, was, as I saw that picture this morning in prayer and I asked the Lord about it because I knew it was connected to Abraham but I didn't understand how. And the Lord began to talk to me about an Abraham initiative. He's about ready to enact on the earth. And there is a blessing coming to the church that is going to touch the globe. God is going to pour out his spirit on the global church. I do believe right now there's a division that's coming in the church. We're already beginning to see it. There's, there's a division, and it's, it's really the, the, the times we're living in, the response of the church to what's going on. And God, what God is doing is he's dividing because he's going to pour his spirit out on the church who stands in faith. And that's the Abraham initiative. He's going to bless them so they become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Abraham was God's great reset. We are in another, another such season, one of generational international blessing. But God needs Abrahams to reset. He needs people of faith that he can entrust with what he wants to release on the earth. If you look at the preparation that Abraham went through, that he believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. But Abraham went through it, even to the point where there were, there were seasons of his life where he wavered and he lied and he suffered the consequences there were seasons of his life he went through very hard trials. God told Abram, I want, you to, I want you to bring your son up on the mountain and I'm gonna show you what you're to do. The Lord says that you're gonna sacrifice your son, your only son, the son you love. The Lord is very explicit in telling him that. He doesn't tell his wife, he said, honey, we're, we gotta go up on the mountain to worship. And he calls it worship. And so he climbs that mountain and God had found somebody that didn't need his intellect appeased before he would surrender in faith. 
He, he would obey regardless of what he understood. You see, the enemy always tries to pull it on the plane of wisdom and understanding. And you know, if you've been around here any time at all, that I really value wisdom and understanding. We've talked about it. We've preached on it. We've looked at it. We've talked about how in order for you to grow, you've got to know. And you can't grow spiritually without growing in your understanding of the things of the kingdom. Knowledge is the pathway to growth. But the Lord has to break us to, of our addiction to knowledge. That's why the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe. But to those who do believe, it is the power of God. It's a package deal. And if you embrace the power of God, you've also got to embrace this, what, what the scriptures call, the Greek word is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal. The foolishness, the scandalon of the cross. You know that word, the root word meant the flip on a mousetrap. You ever tried to set a mousetrap? I've set a lot of mousetrap. I still don't like to do it. It just makes me nervous. You know, you, you set it and, man, I've set some mousetraps. You could have sat an elephant's butt on it and it wouldn't have snapped because the, the thing was too bent. So you got to keep bending so it's just barely holding and then you, it snaps again and it just makes me nervous. That little switch, that little lever, that's the scandalon. The foolishness of the gospel will trap the human soul. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he said, there comes a place in God where our, heart, our, our mind must humbly wait outside while our heart goes into worship. We gotta say to our intellect, I'm sorry, this is beyond you. You just stay there. We, a patronizing little pat on the head. You just stay here. I'm going to worship the most. This is beyond what you can comprehend. And we go in and worship and God will intentionally lead us into scenarios in our life where that dynamic takes place. Where your mind has to humbly stay outside and say, I don't understand this, but Lord, my heart is leading me on. In the kingdom, surrender comes before understanding. In the world, we want to have our intellect appeased and then we will decide whether we will bow our knee. Why is that so important? Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that fruit, it was part of its enticement was its ability to make one wise. Eve desired to be sophisticated. Sophia, the, the, the word wisdom is the root word of our sophistication and it's that idea we want to be cultured, we want to be woke, we want to be sophisticated. We don't want to appear foolish. But that very mentality is at, at, at odds with the power of God, the outpouring of the Spirit. If you've ever been in an environment where the Spirit of God is pouring out, people do weird things, and it's God. There's a reason that on the day of Pentecost itself, people said, they are drunk. They're, they must have been drinking. And Peter gets up and says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We haven't been drinking. We were talking at uh, Thanksgiving, my mom, my precious mama, she's 80 years old. She's, she was sitting on the chair and we were talking about, I don't know, it was probably 10, 10 years ago, we went up to Toronto, to the Toronto Blessing. Man, we got touched. And uh, my mom got so touched, she was drunk in the spirit. And uh, 
but my mom, we get on this elevator, and these, I'm, I'm having to literally carry my little sister, get her in the elevator, and my mom looks at the people in the elevator with wide eyes looking at us, and she said, we're not drunk, it's the Holy Spirit. And they just looked at us like we were weirder than ever, you know. And, uh, but there's no explaining that. It's better felt than telt. You can't, you can't describe it, but it's in the Word. God does controversial things. And he'll do things that literally the scandal on, the foolishness of the cross, the very thing that when we embrace it is the power of God. If you're not feeling the it looks weird, it looks foolish to others. And you get to decide, do I want the and if I want the then I've got to be willing to look foolish to others. And if I say, no, no, not, that would be a poor witness. I'm not gonna look foolish to others. Then you, you forfeit the I've been before. I want more. I'm willing to look like a fool if that's what it We need to understand, it's the scandal of the cross. God built this thing in. Why? Because the what, what C.S. Lewis calls that hideous strength, the human intellect, that thing that's given to us as a gift to be used and instructed by him, to sit at his feet and learn, we now want him to sit at our feet and appease that hideous strength of intellect. The very thing that was given as a gift becomes a weapon used against us. And so what God says is if you want to enter the kingdom, then you've got to humble your intellect and say, God, I don't understand, but I know this is true. My estimation of your character is you are good. You can explain the rest later. And as you come into the kingdom, God begins to teach you. That's why First Peter says, add to your faith, what? Virtue and to virtue character, knowledge. Add to your faith, one translation, add to your faith, character, and then to character, knowledge. You don't add faith to your knowledge because the things of the kingdom can't be accessed without faith. Faith is the very thing that gives you, grants you perspective to see it. And then God begins to explain to you. Let, let me take another run at it. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this. I think it's chapter two, it might be chapter one. He says, the gospel, comma, the, or, or no, it's Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Note the order of those two things. He is first the power, then the wisdom. It's not the other way around. If you try to think yourself into an encounter, think yourself into and experience, think yourself into the power of God, you'll never get there. And the way, the way of the kingdom is you get, and then God explains to you what happened. What we want is we want to study the, well, how does that work? You know, is this spiritual or is this physical? And is that an angel? And, all? and that's, that's not going to bring you into the, now, I don't know how, if we were to write that, I don't know how you would translate, I do think of Hoel. Now, Hoel, how would you translate that in Spanish? You see? <laughs> it's good. That's a good translator. 
Last week I said something about hunky-dory. Just because you walk in faith doesn't mean everything's hunky-dory. And Hoel looked over, hunky-dory? <laughs> so he's my trial run. I won't use that in Colombia, okay? But God wants to bring us in to those encounters with him. Those things are accessed by faith. And faith and wisdom work together, but they're not the same thing. Faith is preliminary. Wisdom is secondary. And so we grow in, we, we surrender in faith and then God begins to instruct our soul. And the reason God does it that way is because part of the fall was our desire to be sophisticated, to look wise, to appear wise. And we've got to humble ourselves and pass through that low door and say, even though I don't understand everything, I surrender to your goodness, to your character. And that isn't just the initial entrance into the kingdom. That is the way of the kingdom. If you want to progress, if you want to go from glory to glory, it's always through the low door of humility and saying, Jesus, I don't understand all this, but I still declare you are good. I want to surrender my life to you. I want you to sit on the throne of my life. And so we, th that's the way the Lord takes us on and instructs our heart. But surrender before instruction. And we've got to realize that. The reason this is important, the way it ties in with what the Lord showed me this morning, is I'm telling you, there is a move of God coming to the church of Jesus Christ. There is a blessing coming on the church. There is a divine reset. And God is raising up a people for himself that he can use to unleash blessing on planet earth. He will bless us to be a blessing, but the only way he can bless us is we've got to receive it by faith. If you look at the way Abraham became blessed, there were some hard lessons in the school of the spirit that he had to pass. And we want to be those people that posture ourselves from that perspective, say, God, you are good. I don't have to understand all that's going on around me. I don't have to understand why painful things happen, and I don't have to make sense of all that, but I know this, you are good. That has to, I, lo I love the way Ben said it, that, that has to be the foundation that we always return to in the pains of life. We refuse to build our faith on anybody else's behavior. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what the church does. It doesn't matter what church leaders do. It doesn't matter what famous Christians do. It doesn't matter what our closest friends do. At the end of the day, our faith is in Christ. And we continue to declare he is good. The purest worship that will ever come out of your mouth is in your darkest hours, your deepest trials. And there's, some, there's opportunities in those lowest moments that you need to take because they are so valuable. You would never want to get there again, but while you're there, declare the goodness of God over that situation. Because those are rare moments in your life, hopefully. But when you get there, declare the goodness of God. I'll never forget, my, my wife and I had a little boy, Alex, who died when he was four. 
He was a little pistol of a kid. I was just, I don't know why this came into my mind the other day at Thanksgiving, but he used to drink his sippy cup and he would, as he'd get it done, he'd look at it, shake it, and like a little old drunk man, he'd throw it across the room. I, I don't know what the deal was with that. Yeah, he was a pistol. One time, he was in and out of the hospital his whole life. Very, very articulate for a little three-year-old boy. Was the, the doctors, they would do, you know, because he had a lot of health issues, so they would do all these tests and psychological tests, and they just got a kick out of him because of his vocabulary. And They'd ask him a question, he'd go on and on and use all these big words, and and uh, he was just a trip. Well, one time he was in the hospital, and uh, after three days of these nurses doting on him, because he's a cute little three-year-old, he was getting out of hand. You know, he was demanding and just being a little, little, you know, brat, okay? <laughs> there was other words that came to mind, but he, uh, so I'm sitting over on the other side of the room, and I told him something. I don't know what it was. And he just looked at me like, forget you. I don't remember what he said, but that was clearly the message he was projecting. Like, forget you, pal. I'm in the hospital. So I waited till the nurse left. <laughs> he had a big room. And I rose from my chair to go deal with my son. At which point he leans over towards the door and starts yelling, nurse, he's hurting me. He's hurting me. I didn't even touch him. I was across the room. That's the kind of boy he was, okay? That has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I was just thinking about that that Thanksgiving. But I remember he would be in and out of the hospital for his whole, whole little life, and he'd get, we'd, we'd send him by helicopter from Colfax and to the hospital. We'd almost lose him again and again. I'd give him CPR. And, and uh, one of the times we took him to the hospital, and they said, they said well, he, he can go home tonight. And I remember getting there, and uh, well, no, we took him earlier in the day, took him home, and that night he stopped breathing again. So we rushed him to the hospital. Kathy got in the ambulance and went, and I remember getting in the bathroom, and I realized I am, I'm sick. And I looked, and I remember staring at myself in the mirror and thinking, this is an opportunity to worship the Lord, to just declare, God is good. Those moments come along very few times in our life, I want to encourage you, seize them. Take them for the kingdom of heaven. Take that ground in your heart. When you're going through something, a mom just came up to me this morning and shared, shared something that's going on in her family. And, and it's, it's hard news, but she said, I'm strangely encouraged because God's not done yet. That's what I'm talking about. Where you take that ground and you say, I'm going to declare the goodness of God over this situation. Those moments, take that ground and sanctify it by worshiping. That, those are the things that qualify you to be an Abraham. God wants to bless you to be a blessing. But do you bless him when you don't understand what he's doing? Have you made your intellect a God that God must appease before you'll bow your knee to him? Or will you bow your knee and say, God, I don't understand this, why this is being allowed to happen. But I know this, you are good. Declare what Ben and Hannah released to us this morning. I'm telling you, mark my words, there's a move of God coming to the church. There is a move of God coming to the church.
But what God is looking for are those who will worship him in their darkest hours. God, those are the ones that God wants. This, this guy climbing over the fence, it was a weird picture, but he was dripping with blessing and he was excited to get outside of his limitations to release it on the world. Let's stand. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Father, we thank you. You are good. We declare it, Lord. I want you just to go back in your mind for a moment and bring up some of the painful moments those moments that seemed to contradict what God says in his word. Those times where it seems like you did everything right, but the breakthrough still didn't come. And I want you in your mind's eye to set that situation right in front of you. And let's just declare the goodness of God over those times. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.